Welcome to the Trinity Forum Conversations podcast. You've likely noticed that information has become more and more accessible, and the tools for communicating with one another continue to expand. And yet we face a paradox. Community has become harder and harder to maintain, and the truth seems increasingly elusive. In this series, we'll focus on navigating the challenges of modernity. Our guests will give us insight on the nature of truth, the challenges of technology, and how to approach our common life. We'll talk with leading thinkers, including Jonathan Haidt, Peter Kreeft, Arthur Brooks, Francis Collins, and many others. In this episode, we'll hear from Arthur Brooks, best-selling author, thought leader, and professor on a better way to bridge divides and mend relationships. He'll explore how to love those with whom we disagree and how we can be agents of redemption and reconciliation. We often hear today in our culture of activism and anger that real courage is standing up to the people with whom you disagree, sticking it to the people with whom you disagree publicly. That's moral courage. That's wrong. That is maybe a perfectly fine thing to do. You should stand up and say the things that you believe. But that's not moral courage. You know what moral courage is? My father taught me this as a kid. Moral courage is standing up for the people with whom you disagree. Standing up to the people with whom you agree on behalf of those with whom you disagree. That's moral courage. That's super hard to do. That's our path forward in America is standing up for the other side. This episode is an edited version of our conversation from March of 2022. You can find the full video of that conversation along with our full catalog of event videos on our website, ttf.org. And check out the show notes on this episode for links to further resources. Here's Cherie Harder. One of the biggest questions facing us is how we live together and pursue the common good across a deep difference. And certainly, one of the most urgent crises we face is not only a civic problem, but also a spiritual one. It's a crisis of fear, loathing, and contempt, a failure of love. How did we arrive at the place where, in the words of our guest, we increasingly view people who disagree with us not merely as incorrect, misguided, but as worthless? And how do we reweave the compassion and care for others into a civic fabric corroded by contempt. Our guest today is a scholar, social scientist, and policy wonk by background, but offers a way forward that's not primarily academic or political, but both spiritual and deeply practical. The antidote to our current ills, he suggests, can be found in the ancient New Testament teaching, to love your neighbor and indeed, to love your enemies. And that subverting our culture of contempt, treating others with love and respect, is among the most needed and most powerful forms of radical civic renewal. It's an intriguing, inspiring, and deeply countercultural argument. And there are few who can make it with the persuasive passion, panache, or piles of data as our guest this evening, Arthur Brooks. Arthur is an economist who serves as the professor of public leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, as well as on the faculty of Harvard Business School. After a remarkable, even legendary decade of service as the CEO of the American Enterprise Institute, one of the world's most influential think tanks. But his path to policy and academic leadership has been an unusual one. 
At the age of 19, he dropped out of college to play the French horn professionally, touring internationally, before he settled into the city orchestra of Barcelona, where he met and wooed his wife, despite the fact that the only language they both spoke was that of music. He later returned to the US, completed his bachelor's by correspondence, and went on to earn a PhD in public policy and microeconomics, eventually becoming a professor of public administration at Syracuse University, where his research on behavioral economics landed him a job as a visiting scholar at AEI before he assumed the top job, and then later departed just a year or two ago for Harvard Business School. In addition to that, he is a columnist for The Atlantic, the host of the podcast, The Art of Happiness with Arthur Brooks, the recipient of six honorary degrees, the author of dozens of scholarly journals and the textbook Social Entrepreneurship, was named one of Fortune Magazine's 50, 50 of the world's greatest leaders, and is also the best-selling author of 12 books, including his recent and excellent book, Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from a Culture of Contempt, and of course, his new release, which just hit number one on the New York Times bestseller list, From Strength to Strength. Arthur, welcome. Thank you, Shree. I'm delighted to be with you here tonight to talk about an urgent problem, but really an opportunity. One of the great things about being an American is that we are the most entrepreneurial culture. And one of the things that entrepreneurs all have in common is where everybody else sees tragedies and problems and things that can't be solved, entrepreneurs see opportunities. So I want to talk to you tonight about the greatest opportunity that we face, which is how we can love our enemies, come together as a country, and build a better future on the basis of what everybody is regretting today, which is what we see around us. Cherie gave you the data. One in six Americans today is not talking to a family member because of politics. Imagine that. We find that 17% of people are estranged from a, a direct family member because of ideology. I mean, these, these, these data are, are incontrovertibly terrible. <laughs> we find that more than half of Democrats and more than half of Republicans actually say the greatest threat to our country is people in the other party. How can you prosper under those circumstances? Well, I'm not going to spend any more time on what we all know to be true. I'm going to spend time on the solutions to this. Now, when you have a big problem like this, and this has been going on for some years now, I'm not standing up on the stage here in Nashville to tell you about something that's brand new or something that's coming down the pike. We're all alarmed by this. When you have a problem like this that we've had trouble solving, when the big majority of Americans wish it weren't a problem, and when I say that, I, I mean that as a data scientist, 93% of Americans say they hate how divided we become as a country. <laughs> that's the good news, because that's the opportunity, that's the market opportunity for us ideologically and as a people to move forward. But we don't know how to do it. Well, when you have a problem like that, the opportunity lies in a new way of thinking. See, you need an epiphany under these circumstances. You can't think harder in the old way when you've hit a wall like we have in America today. This is true in every line of work. This is true in ideology and politics. This is true in business. This is true in family life, as a matter of fact. When, you know, I'm the, I'm the father of, of three young adult children. Pray for me. And you know, not long ago, five years ago, I remember that well, I had three teenagers, which was Fun, and, and my middle son, 
My, his name was Carlos. He was a junior in high school. And we had this old problem we were running into again and again and again. It was great. It was like there was, we were frequent flyers in the headmaster's office. It was unbelievable. I mean, week after week, he's not going to graduate. He's getting C's and D's. He failed math. It was again and again. Not living up to his potential. And my wife said, my wife Esther, she's from Barcelona. She says, this is an old problem. We need a new way of thinking about it. You, say, you teach entrepreneurship. You always talk about a new way of thinking about it. We need a new way of thinking about this grades problem. And I said, I'm all ears, sweetheart. <laughs> she says, at least we know he's not cheating. <laughs> so in that spirit, let's look for a solution. Now, I remember, as a social scientist, when I first saw this problem coming toward us politically as a nation. It was, it was actually before the tumultuous 2016 election. It was in 2014, as a matter of fact. And I remember the, I remember the month because I was reading a journal article, an academic journal article, a paper, a scholarly paper, written by three psychologists. And at the time, I was the president of the American Enterprise Institute, and I was supervising a large workforce of scholars. And so I was trying to always stay abreast of the literature. And you know, it was a scholarly institution. So I was reading a lot of these journals, and, and there was one particular article that caught my eye in February of 2014. It was by three psychologists at, at Northwestern University who were writing about a phenomenon called motive attribution asymmetry. Right. Now, that sounds fancy and complicated. It's actually incredibly simple. All it means, motive attribution asymmetry, is a situation in which you have implacable conflict between two people or two groups that goes on and on and can't be sorted out. And what all of these conflicts have in common is an error. And the error is this. Both sides believe that they are motivated by love, but that the other side is motivated by hatred. Okay, very simple, right? Motive attribution asymmetry sounds super complicated. See, I'm an academic, and let me fill you in on, on the secret to being a good academic. You take a simple idea, and you put complicated words on it, and you get tenure. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> so, and, and, and all conflicts, according to these scholars, is based on this error. They, they looked at the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. They looked at the Rwandan genocide, the Balkans. They even looked at average divorce. The average divorce is based on motive attribution asymmetry. Look, I love, but she hates. She hates me. And you go to her and she says, no, 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 no. I'm the one who loves. He hates. I know by his behavior that he hates me. And that attribution asymmetry, that fundamental dichotomy between them, leads them to divorce court. But the, there's good news. The good news is based on a mistake. And if you can correct the mistake, you can actually lead to some sort of peace, some sort of reconciliation. Now, that was interesting to me as a scholarly matter, but, but here's what really got my attention in this article. The end of the article, the scholars say, the, 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 the authors said, and there's something going on in American politics. It was almost a footnote that Americans today, Democrats and Republicans, conservatives and, and, and liberals, have the same level of motive attribution and symmetry they found, looking at the data, as the Palestinians and Israelis. February 2014, I said, well, this can't be good. Something bad's gonna about to happen. I mean, we're seeing what's happening in the Middle East. Is that coming here? Huh, couldn't get it out of my mind, in my heart. And you no, know, at the time, and still, what I do for a living is travel around and 
talk about ideas. I'm super passionate about that. I love talking to people about ideas. And I'll talk to all different groups. I talk to, I talk to very left-wing audiences at universities and very right-wing audiences who are activists and business groups that are non-ideological. I talk to my own faith. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Roman Catholic, most important thing in my life. I talk to a lot of Catholic groups. I talk to a lot of secular groups. Everybody wants to talk about ideas. And, and this was on my mind about a month after I read that article while I was traveling around. And I found myself in New Hampshire, in Manchester, New Hampshire, at a rally of 600 conservative activists. I was a keynote speaker at you know, huge, I mean, really fired up audience, like three-cornered hats and costumes and the whole thing. And, and I got there a little bit early. And I noticed there was 15 speakers. It was one speaker after another all day long. And here's the weird thing. I looked at the program, and I was the only speaker on the program not running for president. <laughs> yeah, 14 Republican presidential candidates and me. And, and nobody's going to mistake me for presidential candidate. I mean, America's not ready for a bald president, I think. And, um, but I thought to myself, what can I do that they can't do? Because this is the thing, right? If you're the only one of something, always think to yourself, what can I do that they can't do? You know what it is? I can say anything I want. Because <laughs> they're you know, running for president, and that's a hard job. Running for president is a tricky thing. But here's the key. If you're in a really partisan situation, you get in front of a, a, an audience that's aligned with your views, and most of them will say, let me tell you something. Everything you think is right and the other side is stupid and evil and hates America. Mode of attribution and symmetry. And sure enough, sure enough, I listened to some of the talks before me, and they were doing the same thing, throwing raw stakes out into the audience rhetorically, right? I thought, okay, I know what I'm going to do. Said a little prayer. <laughs> <clears throat> and I went up there and did my thing. I was giving a talk about policy, about economic policy, and foreign policy, whatever. But in the middle, I stopped and I said, my friends, you've been hearing a lot of people that you agree with, and you've been hearing a lot of things that have been applause lines because they've been telling you that you're right. And furthermore, you've been hearing the people who aren't here because they would disagree with you, might not even feel safe here, quite frankly, political liberals, that they're stupid and evil and they hate America. They're stupid and evil and they hate America. But I want you to remember something, I said. <laughs> I was nervous at this point. I said. They're not stupid, and they're not evil. They're just American citizens who disagree with you on politics and policy. And, and, and if you want to persuade them, which should be your goal is persuasion, remember, nobody has ever been insulted into agreement <laughs> in history. If you want to persuade them, you can only do it with one thing, and that's love. It was not an applause line. <laughs> but there was an applause line. See, it came right afterward. See, this lady in the audience yells out, actually, they are stupid and evil. <laughs> now, she wasn't trying to repudiate me or hurt my feelings. No. She was making a joke. It was a festive environment. She was with her friends. I got it. But that was really important, and I remember it because that was the moment that I understood the path forward because I thought of that moment of Seattle. Why Seattle? It's my hometown. I grew up in Seattle, Washington. 
And if there's one thing you should know politically about Seattle, it's the most left-wing city in America. Right? It is the most politically progressive place in America. My mother was an artist, and my father was a professor, and they lived in Seattle. What do you think their politics were? <laughs> I was the only one who wound up being a Republican. In the history of my family, as far as I can tell. I was the only one who was kind of center right in my views, sort of market oriented. They, I was the oddball, I was the black sheep, I was the, uh, I was the weird one. I was maybe dropped on my head or something. But let me tell you something about my parents. They were not stupid and they were not evil. They were excellent parents who brought me up in the faith, who brought me up with a, a sense of what is right, who taught me that we are all sisters and brothers with no exceptions. And I absorbed that. And all of my political beliefs, which I think are mostly right, I think, they're probably some are wrong, but I don't know which. <laughs> but the point is that they, the, the, the values I got from my wonderful parents transcended those things. And that lady in New Hampshire, who I'm sure is a wonderful person, was insulting my mom. And I took it personally. And my friends, that's the secret. See, we often hear today in our culture of activism and anger that real courage is standing up to the people with whom you disagree, sticking it to the people with whom you disagree publicly. That's moral courage. That's wrong. That is maybe a perfectly fine thing to do. You should stand up and say the things that you believe. But that's not moral courage. You know what moral courage is? My father taught me this as a kid. Moral courage is standing up for the people with whom you disagree. Standing up to the people with whom you agree on behalf of those with whom you disagree. That's moral courage. That's super hard to do. That's our path forward in America, is standing up for the other side. Here's the question. How? It's so hard. It's so hard to do that. That's how you lose friends and lose supporters. If you're a politician, that's how you lose contributors and you lose followers. So how do we do it? Now, to begin with, let's do a little bit of social science. And let's figure out what's actually going on here. Let's go, what's going on behaviorally here? Now, I talked about motive attribution asymmetry. And a lot of people will say that what motivates this, this inability to see how other people actually feel, to put ourselves in other people's shoes, to see things from other people's point of view, is that we're just so angry. If you turn on MSNBC or Fox News or of the highly partisan news sources, of which most seem to be pretty highly partisan these days, you see plenty of anger. You see kind of the rage-o-matic pundits, you know, talking heads yelling every single night if you turn on, on, on cable television at seven or eight or nine. Sure enough, there is a lot of anger. But here's the funny thing. Anger actually isn't the problem. Anger is a hot, basic, negative emotion. It, it, it starts in the limbic system of the brain. The limbic system of the brain is the bundle of tissue, the very middle part of your brain that was evolved over 40 million years and has been intact for the last million. It's your animal sense. It's your onboard processing unit for outside stimuli, it's automatic. Your dog is a limbic system. Your limbic system processes your basic emotions, like your anger and your fear and your disgust and your sadness and your joy and your love and your interest. Those are the basic emotions. 
when we talk about anger, anger actually isn't a huge problem per se because it's a hot emotion, it's automatic. And what it says is, I'm reacting to something that I heard that I care about. So if you react in anger to somebody in your family, it's I care about you, I care about what you said, and I want to change it. Okay, now, it could be destructive to be sure. But one of the interesting facts in my business as a social scientist is that anger and divorce are uncorrelated. Hmm. Now, that's very good news for me, because I'm married to a Spaniard. <laughs> and the secret to my three decades of happy marriage is the lack of correlation between anger and divorce. <laughs> no, 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 that's not what leads to divorce. And that's not the problem in America. The problem is that we take anger, of which there's plenty, that's a basic, hot, negative emotion, and we take another negative basic emotion called disgust, which is reserved for non-human pathogens. Disgust is something that looks terrible or smells terrible or tastes awful because it's supposed to alert you to a pathogen that might kill you. That's why it was evolved as such. You take anger and disgust and you mix them together and it turns ice cold and it becomes a complex emotion that philosophers call contempt. Contempt, according to Arthur Schopenhauer, the great 19th century philosopher, is the conviction of the utter worthlessness of another person. Have you ever been treated as stupid, beneath contempt, worthless? You never forget it. It feels terrible because to be regarded as worthless is the ultimate expression of dismissal, even hatred. You should never treat another human with contempt. And yet that is exactly what we find is the way that we translate motivation, motive attribution, asymmetry to each other. Okay, so what's the problem? Problem number one to sum up so far is that there's a polarization problem in America, to say the least. Behind that is motive attribution asymmetry. The way that is expressed is contempt. To solve the problem, we need to take on and beat contempt. How do we do that? Well, interestingly, I talk to a lot of people in, who are trying to do different kinds of reconciliation, you know, peacemaking. I just got back from Medellin, Colombia, where I was until Saturday, where I was talking to people trying to reconcile politically in a country where not that long ago people were killing each other over these differences. It's just a big problem, and I, and I love doing that work. It's so important, but you can also find it closer to home. I have a colleague, somebody who's been on my show, named John Gottman. Some of you have heard of him. He's, a, he's a, the, the world's leading expert in marital reconciliation. He teaches at the University of Washington. And he runs a laboratory his, with his wife, Julie, the Gottman Marriage Laboratory. This guy's a hero. He's a hero as far as I'm concerned. Why? Simply put, he's brought thousands of couples back together again that were going to get divorced. That's a hero for me. Look, it doesn't matter what our politics are. The one thing that we know is that the basis of a strong society is healthy families. And the basis of healthy families is mom and dad being in love with each other. If somebody can save some who are drifting apart, not everybody, sometimes it's impossible it seems, but if some can be reconciled, that's God's work. So I love this guy, I love his work. And, and he says that the reason that people get divorced is motive attribution asymmetry expressed in contempt. And I asked him, so you're dealing with couples all the time that are, that are on their way to divorce court, basically. They're quarreling and they come into his laboratory and he gives them advice. 
I said, how do you know, or can you tell right after you meet somebody if they're gonna get divorced? And he said, I can predict with 97% accuracy after one hour if a couple will, 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 will be divorced within three years. I wanna know what you're looking at, so I don't do that. Right? <laughs> and he said, simple, eye-rolling, eye-rolling. The, the universal expression of sarcastic dismissal, of derision. That's how we express ourselves in America today, right? Golly, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Right? That's what, now, I've had teenagers, like many of you have, they're like, they, they roll their eyes so hard they almost fall backwards in their chairs, right? But, but that's not really what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when a peer, when a fellow citizen, somebody who owes you the respect of just listening to you, rolls your eyes when you, rolls their eyes when, when you say something. You never quite forget it, it gets under your skin. You ever had a colleague like that? You say something in a meeting like, oh, there you go again, you know? That's injury. John Gottman says that when people express contempt for each other, it's almost like physical abuse in the way that it actually affects the brain. Now, there's a part of the brain called the anterior cingulate as part of the limbic system I told you about a minute ago. It has two functions, processing physical pain and processing mental pain. It's the same part of the brain. We have a very efficient, parsimonious brain. You get insulted, you're treated with contempt, it's like being hit. No wonder couples wind up in divorce court. What, did he hit you? Worse, day after day after day of contempt which feels the same. Now here's the problem, friends. America is a couple in crisis. America is like a couple that used to love each other and that now, now they can't even talk to each other. At the very beginning, <laughs> when you're first in love, you can't see anything wrong with each other. And then by the end, there's nothing but criticisms. There's nothing but dismissal. And that's how we treat each other because of something as relatively trivial as political differences, because we're in the habit of expressing ourselves this way. John Gottman says the problem with his couples is that, is that they're in the habit of talking to each other this way, and they don't even know it. That's why there's motive attribution asymmetry. That's why he can say, I love but she hates, and she can say, no, I love but he hates. They don't realize they're saying to each other all day long, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. We have a communication problem in this country. Now, the opportunity's coming, isn't it? You see what I'm talking about? That it used to be irreconcilable differences. We need two countries. We need to ship people out. We need to do something radical. No, no. We need to communicate better. Now, it doesn't mean that we're not gonna have differences. And my argument's gonna be in a minute, it's good that we have differences, because that's excellent. It's called competition. We need to communicate with each other in a way that really expresses what's written on most of our hearts. How do we do that? We have to break the habit of contempt. We have to break the habit of contempt. When I say we, I mean me. When I was doing research for this book, I was looking at my old clips on TV. Brad says he sees me on Squawk Box, you know. But I've done a lot, you know, like anybody in my position, I do a lot of television, you know, debates and CNN and whatever. And I looked back, I was looking at YouTube, just to kind of see how I express myself. And I see a debate I'm having with this nice lady, another economist, about a contentious topic on which we're on opposite sides. The minimum wage, I think it was. And she was making what I considered to be some very ill-considered points. And I rolled my eyes. <laughs> and I'm telling you, 
When she went home that night after that debate, I guarantee you, she did not say to her husband, you know, I was debating Arthur Brooks on TV tonight. He was making some good points. I guarantee you, she said, that guy Arthur Brooks is a jerk. And I earned that. And I'll bet you every time she sees me ever since then, she says, there's that jerk. And I can't get it back. Hmm. I can apologize, but how, how much good will that do? Maybe some. So here's the key. Why did I do that? Why do we do that? Why are the, is the whole country doing that? You know, you're looking at the television, you see your least favorite politician, which is pretty easy, and you're like, oh, that guy again. You know? And your kids see it, and your family sees it, and your friends see it, and then we all do it. And we get into this habit of contempt. We're contempt machines. Why? Because we have the habit of doing that. So this is what we have to do next, is break that habit. How? One little bit, one more little neuroscience lesson for the evening is how habits are formed. Habits are all formed and stored in a part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. The nucleus accumbens has one job. It's about the size of the end of your index finger. A little piece of tissue has one job, which is governing your habits, good and bad. It's amazing, actually, because it frees up your prefrontal cortex, the big meaty part of your brain to do all these new things and learn these new skills. So, so for example, maybe when you were, last time you were driving to work, today or whenever, you don't remember driving to work. You just found yourself at work. You weren't drunk or asleep. What happened was that your nucleus accumbens drove you to work, so your prefrontal cortex could do other stuff, like talking on the phone or listening to an audio book or whatever music, whatever you like to do. That's great. That's an amazing human capability. Here's the bad news. It also governs your terrible habits. That's why habits are hard to break. That's why you can't break them with willpower. For years, I had a terrible habit. You heard about my background. I was a classical musician for a long time. You actually, you got the sanitized version of my biography. You know, it's like, I left college at 19. You know, dropped out, kicked out, split in hairs. You know? <laughs> <laughs> What followed was what my parents called my gap decade, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, but during all those years, I was a smoker. And I wasn't proud of that. It was the wrong thing to do. It was expensive. It was bad for my health. When I was, I was engaged, you know, I was engaged. And I was going to get married to a woman of my dreams, who still is the woman of my dreams. And, and, and one night I woke up and I had burned 10 holes in my bed. And I said to myself, this has got to stop before I get married. Because one thing to kill me, it's another thing to kill her. I got to stop. So I said, okay, I'm just going to use my willpower. I won't smoke. I won't smoke. I always smoked. Kept coming back to it. Kept coming back. Until a friend of mine, the guy who played in the orchestra with me in Barcelona, he said, you're doing it wrong. He said, you can't willpower it away. It's very simple. It's hard, but it's simple. Here's what you need to do. Every time you want to smoke, stop, and then wait as long as you can before you smoke. Now, what he was telling me to do was to reprogram my nucleus accumbens. See, the nucleus accumbens works automatically. You get the stimulus response, stimulus response, and it reinforces the process again and again and again. You put space in there, you have a choice of actually doing something else. Do something else. So every time you want to smoke, every time you want to smoke, you stop and have a drink. There's another problem here, but anyway, you get the idea. So this is the same thing. That's how I quit smoking. This is the same thing with any rhetorical habit, any communications habit as well. If you are a contempt addict, and you probably are if you live in America today, 
You gotta break the habit of the eye rolling, of the sarcasm, of the dismissal, of the derision, of all the contempt. How are you gonna do it? Every time you feel it, stop and do something else. But what? I asked the wisest man that I know, what should I do? When I feel contempt, what should I do instead? His Holiness the Dalai Lama. This is somebody that I've worked with closely for the past 10 years. We've made a documentary film together. <clears throat> We've written together. I've interviewed him many times. And he's a beloved teacher, mentor, and friend to me. And I'm, I'm, I feel very privileged to say that. We don't share the same religion. He's a Buddhist. He knows I'm a Catholic. I've tried to convert him many times. He's been resistant. <laughs> I will continue. But I asked him, I said, Your Holiness, every time I feel contempt, I feel contempt rising in me. What should I do? And he said, at that moment, use it as an opportunity. Good. To show warm-heartedness. And I said, what else you got? Because, <laughs> you know, that just sort of sounds, I don't know, weak. Then I thought about it. Some of you may or may not know the story of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He's the leader of the Tibetan Buddhist people, and he, until relatively recently, was the, the political leader of Tibet in exile. In 1959, he was kicked out with sheer military aggression by the most populous military force in the world's history, the communist Chinese. Sent him into exile, poor, to be forgotten, to be just disappeared. Might makes right, which we've seen again and again and again throughout history. And what would happen under these circumstances? We'd forget about the Tibetans. We'd forget about the Dalai Lama. And yet, over the 60 years that followed, he became the world's most respected religious figure. How did he pull that one off? He's got no money. He's got no troops. He's got no force. He did it by practicing warm-heartedness. I know it. He, believe, he says, and I believe him because I've experienced this myself, that he wakes up every day and prays for the Chinese leaders. Not that they will give him back his homeland, but they will, they will lead happy and fulfilled lives. <laughs> pure goodness, pure love, pure warm-heartedness. And that witness to warm-heartedness has, has rocketed around the world and lifted up the cause of Tibet and made the Dalai Lama a Nobel Peace Prize winning leader who has posters on college freshmen's walls. Incredible, the force of love. So when he says that, and he can do that, well, just maybe I can do that too. So how? I said, your holiness, good advice, how? Help me. And he said, think of a time when you were treated with contempt, treated with hatred, and you responded with love. And then remember how that felt in your heart, that little flame that came alive in your heart. And then recreate the feeling, and the action will follow. This is very good psychology, by the way. Because what this does is it reverses the causality of the action. And in so doing, by going from the feeling, you can get the virtuous action. This is something that we see a lot in the research on psychology, but it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Remember how good you feel when you act like the person you want to be, and you will be that person. Remember a time. Now, there aren't that many instances where I just spontaneously responded to somebody's hate with love. I'm not a saint, I'm not a saint. I want to be a saint, but I'm working on it. So I remembered a time, however, which was in 2006, it was a long time ago now. It was the first time I ever wrote a book that like human beings ever read. <clears throat> I was an academic and, uh, and I was leading a life beavering away of perfect academic bliss and obscurity 
which means I wrote books that were, that were complicated and nobody really read. But, you know, look, it was good. I had tenure. And, <clears throat> and then I wrote a book that was equally boring and technical, but it hit the news cycle in just the right way. And President Bush read it and invited me to the White House, and I was in all the papers, suddenly. And there was a weird thing. My life changed kind of, kind of forever. Because suddenly, I was on all the talk shows and I was on television, and, and my, my scholarship was being read by, by human beings. And I started hearing from people all over the country who were now reading this book. It was a book about charitable giving. And it asked, who gives more, conservatives or liberals? I didn't have a dog in the fight. I just looked at the data, and I came to a conclusion that one side liked and the other side didn't like. And so I started hearing from people all over the country, and if they liked my book, it was very easy to get my email, because I taught at Syracuse University in those days. And if they liked my book, they would say they liked me. And if they didn't like the book, they didn't like me, and they told me that I was a bad guy and a liar. This was very weird for me. And I remember one day, about two months after the book came out, I was in my office working on Wednesday or something, and an email comes in. I was getting dozens of emails. And an email comes in from a stranger in Texas. Dear Professor Brooks, you are a right-wing fraud. Bad start. <laughs> but I'm a good sport. I'm going to read the whole email because I was reading everybody's email. And I noticed when I'm halfway through the email, this thing is like 5,000 words long. It's going to take me 20 minutes to read it. But I'm plowing through it. And this guy was vitriolic in detail about every, every fact, every data set, every conclusion of my book. I mean, even details like, I think that the columns in table 3.1 are reversed, you moron. I mean, like that. <laughs> but as I got two-thirds through the email, I realized what I was really feeling was gratitude. He read my book. <laughs> Nobody read my books before. I mean, like, my family didn't read my books, right? So I said to myself, you know, I got nothing to lose. I'm not going to see this guy in Texas. I'm going to say what's written on my heart right now because why not? So I wrote back to him. I said, you're so-and-so. I know you hate the book. I know you hate me. It's terrible. I'm terrible. It's all terrible. I get it. But you took time to read the whole thing. And I put two years of my life into that project. I'm so grateful to you. Thank you. Send. <clears throat> Go back to work. I'll never hear from that guy again. Ding, there's his email. Now I'm apprehensive. Maybe he wants to kill me or something. I don't know. Right? I open it up. Dear Professor Brooks, next time you're in Dallas, if you want to get some dinner, give me a call. <laughs> what? What? What just happened? What happened was he didn't even expect me to see it or read it. He was expressing himself. And he saw that there was a human being on the end of that email who read it and then treated him with some respect and even a little bit of friendship, and it changed his heart. But more importantly, it changed my heart. See, I went into that thinking this jerk and feeling really defensive, but then feeling a little bit of gratitude and then telling him, and I felt closer to God just for that 15 minutes between when I sent the email and when he wrote back to me. And I got that weird response from him, and it showed me that this is the secret. Maybe you don't get the response back like that. Maybe you get more abuse, maybe. But the question is not how you can change them. The question is how you can change you. And love changes you. That's what I learned that day. I, I actually never had dinner with him. Um, <laughs> I'd probably be chained to a pipe in his basement right now or something. <laughs> <laughs> Is that too edgy for the Trinity Forum? I don't know. Anyway, so, <laughs> so, but this is the secret, isn't it? 
This is the secret. Break the habit by consciously bringing love where you find contempt. So let me give you some homework on how you can do this. And let me start with what I don't want you to do, which is I don't want you to agree. Agreement is a kind of mediocrity. You know, I love competition. Competition in politics is called democracy. I don't want elections with one person running at a post. I want competition. Competition in economics is called the free enterprise system, which has literally pulled two billion of my sisters and brothers out of poverty since I was a kid. That's competition. We need it. And the most important kind of competition of all that lies behind all the politics, behind all the economics, is the competition of ideas. And that requires that we disagree. I told you before, I think I'm politically mostly right, but I'm pretty sure I'm wrong on a lot. I just don't know what I'm wrong on. And the only way for me to find out is to be surrounded by people who disagree with me. The proverbs say that iron sharpens iron. That's what we need is to, not to disagree less, but to disagree better. What else don't we need? Civility, tolerance, these are garbage standards. If I told you that my wife Esther and I are civil to each other, you'd say, you need counseling. <laughs> if I told you that my employees tolerate me, you'd say I have a huge HR problem on my hands. No, no, no. The right standard is love in disagreement. So I only give you some positive, positive assignments. Three, to be exact. The first is to go and search. Remember I told you 93% of Americans hate how divided we become as a country? That means 7% don't hate it. That's bad news. Who are they? They're disproportionately people who are profiting from outrage. People in politics, people in media, people in social media. When you hate, somebody's profiting and it's not you. Go in search of people who are professionally in the business of driving us apart and turn them off. It doesn't help to turn off people on not on your side because you weren't being influenced by them anyway. Turn off the people on your side that are your id. They're making you they're making you feel those forbidden thoughts about your fellow citizens, things that you wouldn't say because you're a civilized person, but you kind of enjoy it when your favorite columnist does it, your favorite television or radio show host does it. Turn it off. Do a favor to yourself and do a favor to our country and turn it off. The outrage industrial complex starts with you. Second, go looking for hatred and go running toward it. Now, if I told you most pathogens, I would tell you to avoid them, like the coronavirus. Somebody has the coronavirus, don't kiss them on the mouth, for example, uh, unless you also have the coronavirus. You get my point that pathogens are things to avoid, except, except this one. Don't avoid contempt, because this is your opportunity to become more morally perfect. I've had, I've had a lot of missionaries on both sides of my family. I come from evangelical a Christian background and I converted to Roman Catholicism as a teenager. Kind of rebellion. My parents thought it was better than drugs. And, um, and, and, and the, the, I mean, I had a lot of missionaries on both sides of the family. Here's the weird thing about missionaries. They're always happy, but they faced constant, constant rejection. You know what nobody's ever said in human history? Great news, there's missionaries on the porch. <coughs> ever. <laughs> <laughs> Pretend we're not home, you know? <laughs> and yet they're beaming. Why? 
Because there's, they're bringing truth where there's lies. They're bringing light where there's darkness. <laughs> this is important because if you're bringing something that truly can lift people up, can save their souls, wouldn't you be happy to do that? Because occasionally when that lands, you've done something better than what anybody else could do for that person. It's the ultimate gift. And that's a joy, is to bring that kind of a gift. You are missionaries for love, whether you're doing it, in it from a religious standpoint or not. You are secular missionaries for love and against contempt. This is what we can all do. Now, it's tricky, right? It means you have to go places where people disagree with you. If you don't have any friends who disagree with you, you need more friends. You need to go to a house of worship that is different than your particular beliefs. You need to find people who disagree and listen to them with love and offer up your values as a gift and not as a weapon. Now, there's lots of ways to do this too. It's hard. You might have to change your rhetorical techniques. John Gottman, my marriage counselor friend, he, when he has a couple that's quarreling, he makes them carry around notebooks both literally notebooks, and they have to write down everything that they want to criticize about their partner. Right? So they, but before you say it, write it down. Right? But you, then you, before you do that, you have to say five loving, affirming things first. Why? Because we're retraining you rhetorically is the whole idea. So it's like, yep, she picked me up late again. Hmm? I'm lay into her for that. But first, you look beautiful tonight. <laughs> and it was very thoughtful of you to leave dinner out for me when I came home late. And I love your mother. That's too much. Anyway, you get the idea. <laughs> we can do the same thing. If you have a hard time on social media, if you have a hard time in politics, use the five to one technique. It'll, see, here's the thing. You never get to the sixth because you get stuck in the five. It changes you. Remember, the whole point of expressing love where there is hate is to change your own heart. And that's a good technique for doing it. Find contempt, run toward it with love. This is your evangelical opportunity to bring peace, reconciliation, and love back to our country. And finally, finally number three, is show some gratitude. You know, one of the incredible things that I find about the political climate in America today is that the far right and the far left, you know, there's one thing they agree on, is that America is a crummy country in decline. Totally, <laughs> I mean, listen to the rhetoric. This country is, can you believe it? You know, everything we do is stupid, everything we do is, fa is a failure. It's just against everything that we do. That is inaccurate and it's insane. This is the greatest, most upwardly mobile, charitable country that is prosperous, that is giving, that is open in the history of the world. We know these things are true. We also know it's not perfect. We also know the country's not perfect. We also know that we can make lots and lots of progress, which is one of the reasons that you're here and you're concerned citizens. You want to make progress. But let's not kid ourselves and think there's something horrible about this country that, that we're not, we should be ungrateful for living in this country. It's amazing when I think about it. I mean, look at, look at you, there's 200 of us and, and you all have different stories. You know, three generations ago, your ancestors were scratching up potatoes in Ireland or running from some godforsaken shtetl or, or being brought to this country involuntarily. All different stories. But you know the one story we all have in common? is that we descend from ambitious riffraff, and we're proud of it. That's a great country, and we should be grateful for it. And by the way, this is one of the greatest techniques for happiness that I teach my students at the Harvard Business School. I teach a class on the science of happiness, and I make them make gratitude lists 
where they have to list on Sunday night the five things they're most grateful for. And every day during the week, they have to contemplate, ponder that list for five minutes, and then update it every Sunday. At the end of 10 weeks, they're 25% happier than they were at the beginning. It's free. <laughs> you must do it, and it's accurate when it comes to America. This is a country that we should be grateful for, that we should treasure, and that we should be grateful for together across our differences and because of our differences. There is no, I could write on, the, on, on, on social media right now that I hate the President of the United States and I think he's a dummy. And there would be no jackbooted thug and there would be no knock in the night. God bless America. And all of us would sacrifice for this country. So, let me sum up with one image before I turn it over to you to hear what's on your mind. And this is a, the image that I want to come back to, which is the missionary. I want you to join me as missionaries for this country for the reconciliation and love that we need, and to bring that and have the joy that that actually brings. You know, it was my wife and I, we teach pre-marriage counseling. It's called pre-Cana in the Catholic Church. And so once a month, we have 30 couples together. and We're talking to them about the secrets of happy marriage and, 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 and communication. And, <laughs> you know, we didn't speak the same language when we met, and our communication has marginally improved in 30 years. And I have to, so we, you know, have something to talk about. And, and it, when we were doing this a couple of months ago, I was, I was afterward, I was saying my prayers in the chapel of this Catholic retreat center where we were doing this thing. And, and as I stood up to leave, I noticed a sign before I went out to the parking lot. Okay, it was actually for, for the people in the chapel before they went home. It wasn't for people coming in, it was people going out. And the sign said, you're now entering mission territory. I said, that's good advice. That's good advice for all of us, whether you're a believer or not, no matter what your religion or no religion happens to be, that if we want to bring this idea, we need the zeal of the missionary to bring something beautiful and true, to set our hearts on fire, and have a working probability of setting other people's hearts on fire as well. And the only way we're going to do that is by imagining a sign over these doors as we go out tonight, so that we, right here in Nashville, Tennessee, tonight, that we remember that as we leave, we're entering mission territory. God bless you and thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode in our series on navigating the challenges of modernity. Be sure to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations podcast to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're enjoying these, please leave us a review. Visit our website at ttf.org for more information and show notes from this episode, as well as resources such as our Trinity Forum readings and videos of our past events.